You're listening to a resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. It is our joy to glorify God by treasuring Jesus in the preaching of His Word. We pray this resource will be a tool used to aid in your relationship with Christ in addition to your local church. Blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning. Still morning. Glad to have you this morning. Would you please open your Bible with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. Please open there with me. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. If you don't have a Bible... Um, you can grab one in the back of the room, and you, can, um, and you can keep it if you don't have one. And we want you to be in there uh, with us today. And as we normally do, we'll get right into it, and we'll read the passage, and we'll begin to understand it in just a moment, okay? This feels weird, though, not opening to the book of Luke, and I don't always like moving away from books of the Bible, unless the Lord leads us to spend some time in another passage for just a little while, for the shepherding of our people for a brief time, which is what I believe that he's doing right now, for a brief time for these next few weeks, for the purpose of family worship and family discipleship. And before we read our passage for the day in Deuteronomy, Let's recite our monthly memory verse. Today we begin a new monthly memory verse for the month of December. So today we're going to read it a few times, thereby beginning this month-long journey with this verse. You ready? It'll be up on the screen. Ephesians 6, 4. Read it with me. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That's what we'll be memorizing this month, all of us. Let's say it again. Ready? Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Let's say it again. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Great. Great. Let that begin marinating in the pot of your mind. And beginning next week, I'm going to explain a little at a time each week. But sufficient to say, the job of a parent, a father, but both parents, is discipline and discipleship. That's what this passage, that's what this verse tells us. Discipline and discipleship, bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. And so we're going to continue to discuss this for the next month. Now, before we pray and read our passage for the day, I want to prepare us to hear. Let's prepare now to hear, okay? His word is so important for us. Let's prepare to hear. Because his word is so important for us. Isaiah 55 says this. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways or are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways than your ways. And my thoughts than your thoughts. So we must learn God's thoughts. We must learn God's ways. That's why we study his word. In the book of Acts, remember Philip? He approaches the Ethiopian eunuch as directed by an angel of the Lord. And this is what happens in Acts 8. Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I, unless someone guides me? 
And he invited, he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. So we must be guided to understand God's word. That's what we're doing now. Ephesians 4 says that they were darkened. We all, apart from Christ, are darkened in our understanding. We're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in us due to the hardness of our hearts. By nature, we are darkened from God's truth, alienated from a life from God and how we were designed, ignorant to his ways due to the hardness of our own hearts apart from Christ. And we're blind to God's truth. We have an ignorance towards it. We need to be enlightened to God's truth. And we must have new hearts to agree with him. Listen, this is what the Bible says. John 3.19 says, the light has come into the world. That's Jesus. And people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Can I tell you, church, listen, this will save you a lot of years. And I've even heard a pastor talk about it recently. Your lack of understanding of the word of God and your ways aligning with his ways is not primarily an intellectual problem. It's first and foremost a moral problem. It's first and foremost a moral problem. If you still have uh, uh, Netflix as your primary uh, time that you spend when you're at home by yourself and that you consume it more than anything else. If pornography is a norm for you, if, if uh, shady business practices is normal for you, you will not understand God's ways and his instructions. First and foremost, your understanding of God's word is a moral problem. It's not an intellectual problem. When you remove those things and depend wholly upon the word of God, you will read it and understand it. When you fast, that's why we fast. We remove it and we depend. We got to understand this thing and you will. It's first a moral problem. So we must not be blind to God's truth. We got to understand it. And God aims to change us, transform us so that we do. John 7 says this. If anyone's will is to do God's will, there's that moral problem. He will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. So here's what Jesus is saying in this. Listen, he's saying, you ever notice when there's a teacher or a preacher or a life coach or something and you just step back and you just wonder this, is he doing that for his own glory? It seems like he's doing that for his own glory. What is the discerning aspect of that? The discerning aspect is this. He's speaking on his own authority. He's only giving us his thoughts and his words. It seems to be something wrong there. He might be speaking for his own glory. But when one is seeking to just speak after God, his words, we know that those words are truthful. That's the testimony. And this is what Jesus says. The one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him, there is no falsehood. We must understand Jesus's words. We must say his thoughts are not my thoughts. We must say, I got to learn his ways. I'm ignorant to them naturally. I must see his word. They must be explained. And I must see that he is glorifying himself and his father through these words. We have to learn his ways, his word, his will. We must have discernment to know that Jesus's words are truthful. And he speaks to glorify himself and his father. So all of this to say, we must know God's thoughts. We must know God's ways. We must seek explanation of the scriptures. We must have the eyes of our hearts opened and enlightened through the gospel. We must know God's truthful teaching. And listen, ready? Certainly, church, certainly this is true when it comes to child raising. Certainly, this is true when it comes to child raising. The discipleship of our children, learning his ways concerning these things. So I pray, let's pray, that God would teach us his truth so that our ways align with his ways and our thoughts align with his thoughts. Let's pray, let's read our passage. We're gonna do some opening introduction to this small series today. We're going to get to the text at the end. It's going to set us up perfectly. We won't have to do all this introduction next week. 
but we're gonna spend some time introducing it and then we'll explain the portion of our text for today. But let's pray, then we'll read, then we'll do some, some time of introduction. Deuteronomy chapter six, we'll pray and then we'll read. Father, we come before you and we must understand our thoughts are not yours, your ways are not ours. We must understand you. We must be taught the scriptures and they must be explained to us. We must listen to them and follow them. Your light must come and we must agree to remove any moral uh, issues that block us from your truth and then to follow your truthful words. God, I pray that this would be true of, our, of today in the hour that we have together right now. The one hour that we have to look at your word. I pray that you would help us to see your ways. In Jesus' name, amen. Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9. Let's read it. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house. And when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. To begin, I want to read to you an excerpt from a book entitled Apparent Privilege. Apparent Privilege. Um, in this book, uh, it, it's the subtitle is called that the gener that the next generation might know. By the way, I recommend this book to you to any of you, um, and one that uh, I read in my seminary years. Okay, uh, long ago in my family ministry class. Okay, it's very accessible. It's very theological. It's very practical. It's very helpful. Apparent. Privilege. I checked. You can find it on Amazon for $14.99, and I uh, would love for you to have it. Uh, this book, along with Shepherding a Child's Heart by Ted Tripp, are two foundational books for discipling your children. Apparent Privilege. It's a book written by a name Steve Wright, uh, by a man named Steve Wright, along with another gentleman named Chris Graves. And this is the foreword is by uh, my family ministry professor, the one who taught Chad and I in uh, seminary in our family ministry class. He's now a, a, a president of another seminary. In his introduction, Steve writes this. Listen. Recently, I had a sobering conversation with Frank a 56-year-old man who has faithfully sought to walk with the Lord for decades. Everyone would label Frank's family as core members of their church. His family rarely missed a Wednesday or Sunday. This is a true account. They were active in numerous ministries. His church had what was considered an excellent and active youth ministry. He had made sure his children were there. They thought they were doing all of the right things. Frank told me, Steve, as my wife and I were raising our boys, I realized that we believed that our job was to bring our boys to church. We truly believed if we could find a good youth program, keep our children active in it, then they would continue to serve Christ. We realize now that this belief system, no matter how earnestly we believed it, did not hold true for us. Our two adult children now in their 30s are no longer walking with Christ. We brought them to church, dropped them off at their program, and ran off to serve in other places all the while honestly believing we were doing the right thing. I wish that somebody had told us that the responsibility of discipling our children was not our pastors, 
It was ours. I wish we would have known. Frank's story is all too common. We now see around two-thirds of young people leaving the church around the time of graduation. Two-thirds of children in church going, families, like Frank's, are walking away from Christ. An alarming number of people are becoming prodigals. And I've had countless conversations with parents like I did with Frank. The truth is many of us may be heading down the same road as Frank and his family. Some because we're simply ignorant to God's ways and truths in this matter. We don't know. Some because we think it to be too difficult of a task. Some because we haven't discipled our children thus far. And so we think that we have already lost the battle. That it's too late. Or others because we have been trained wrongly. The attractional model in the American church has discipled us to think this way. We unknowingly discipled. We were, we've been unknowingly discipled in a way that doesn't align with the philosophy of the Bible when it comes to, to the discipleship of children. Out of a usually genuine heart to help teach our kids, we put all of our hope in children's ministry and youth programs. We even stake our confidence in simply whether or not our children like it. Right? Do they like it? They liked it. We consider it a win when our children simply come home with colored pictures, which they have a lot of. If you're a parent, your house is full of colored pictures. When they say a spiritual word like heaven or God, we got to realize that our children, what they need is explicit, explicit Bible, actual verses from beginning to end with reference. Listen, full Bible verses from beginning to end with reference from mom and dad. Because that's where the power lies in the explicit truth from the parent. Jesus said, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Paul writes, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. That's how faith comes. And going to church for a moment, for a moment within a, it's, it's one moment for us, 90 minutes give or take, in what is meant to be a whole lifestyle of discipleship in the home. It's just one, one pinprick, one blip on the radar, an important one, but one. A home that's built on the gospel where Christ is, is, is the focus and his mission is foremost and where parents are equipping children daily in the explicit word of God, that's what is norm in God's economy. The church is meant to equip families to do this, for families to have the support of doing this together. You're doing this? You're doing this? How's it going? How's it going? Okay, let's keep going, right? I did a small calculation, and if a child spends 90 minutes at church, 90 Every week for 18 years, they'll have spent 84,240 minutes being taught. 90 minutes at church every week for 18 years. 84,240 minutes. In comparison, for those same 18 years, they will spend 9 million 440 and 34,880 minutes under the influence of their parents. 84,000, 9,434,000. This one of a kind teaching and care is designed by God to be entrusted to parents. Parents. 
And more than this, even if those 84,000 minutes are utilized perfectly, the spiritually lukewarm family will counteract any work that's done at the church. Causing a child not to take a life lived for God as seriously as prescribed in the Bible. Because that's the primary example that they saw, lukewarmness. On the other hand, even if it's with kicking and screaming, sometimes the child will go to church, leave church, sit in the family devotion, kicking and screaming. I don't want to. I'm bored. If the parent will make serious Christianity the norm regardless, as, a, as an adult, the child will revert back to the place of comfort, what they knew growing up. Because as they will get older, they will revert back to where they feel safe, which is near to God and what their parents taught them. We as parents need to simply give the explicit truth. Don't worry too much, parents. Listen, I'm focusing on whether or not you're making this lifestyle of Christianity attractive enough. The right portrait of God in the gospel is most certainly the most attractive reality in all the universe, right? It is. Because God is the greatest reality in all the universe. But listen, listen, the concern is this. This is who God is. This is the reality of your sinful condition. This is what the gospel is. And this is what the Bible is. Do you believe it? That's what the concern is. The truth, regardless. Now, of course, listen, your conduct and that presentation should match the pattern of the scriptures. It should be full of love and joy and brokenness and gentleness and truth and meekness and humility and honesty and repentance and wholehearted living for Christ. And that will verify the truthfulness of your message. But nonetheless, parents with explicit truth to their children is what they need all the time. Now, I'd like to read to you a, a few more excerpts along the way. They did a survey, and I want you to hear this, parents. Listen, listen, listen to this. He says, 98% of students surveyed said that they wanted to pray with their parents as often or more often than they currently did. 97% of students wanted to read the Bible as often or more often with their parents than they currently did. Only 10% reported to read the Bible with their parents very often. And over 50, oh, only 5% said that they would not be likely to follow their parents' advice. The majority said that they would. Think about you when you were a kid. What did you want from your mom and dad? Safety, involvement, teaching, instruction. And so listen, here's what the open-ended survey said. I wish my parents would, and they let the kids fill in the blank, would take my Christianity seriously would pray with me every night, even when I'm getting ready to sleep, would start a family devotion, would read the Bible with me more, would help me understand the Bible, would stay faithful to each other and to God, would spend time together, would relate the problems in life to Christian stories, would read the Bible with me more and pray with me more. Would I wish they would do more things as a family. Those are all just points that they said. And this is important because we can't buy the lie any longer or use the excuse that our children don't want it or they're not listening. Listen, we can't forget that they are listening and that they do want it. We can't forget the amazing privilege that we have as parents. I said to our staff recently, and even some of our, our guys in our, our Northwestern Mutual Bible study, that I'm aiming to be a family man fighting to be a pastor rather than a pastor fighting to be a family man. There's a priority. There's a ranking in the scriptures. Ask yourself, is the pattern of your life displaying a businessman fighting to be a family man? A technician fighting to be a family man? An entrepreneur fighting to be a family woman? Or does the pattern and mentality of your life display a family man, a family woman fighting to be faithful in your career? Steve Wright writes in this book, our career isn't really our job. Our career puts food on the table and keeps the lights on so that we can do our real job, which is found in the scriptures. That's our real purpose, our mission, and then primarily in the home. 
Our real job is laid out clearly in the word. That's our purpose. And of course, that means making disciples in the workplace, but more so at home. Our true purpose is found in the word of God. And church, listen, much of the results of your children will, will, be, will be seen through the active obedience of you discipling your family. God gave parents as the primary discipler of the kids. This is what, this is what he, he, he writes again. God gave parents the primary role of spiritually discipling their children. In years of teaching on this subject, I always begin asking the same question. As you open up God's word, who do you find that God has put in place to be the primary discipler of children? In all the years of asking this question, no one ever missed the answer. God gave parents the primary discipleship role. The peak of this teaching is called the Shema and is found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, as we're going to study in this short series. This isn't just a Jewish or Old Testament principle. It is also found in Ephesians 6. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Before there were churches, before there were Sunday schools, before there were youth groups, God entrusted parents the privilege to teach their children. This, is, this command hasn't changed. There is no Shema version 2.0. Teaching our children about the Lord is our privilege and responsibility as parents. John Angel James writes this. Here, fix your center. Here, direct your aim. Here, concentrate your efforts, your energies, your prayers. Remember, their religious education is your business. Whatever aids you call in from the ministers or the teachers... You must never, should never, can never delegate the work. God will hold you responsible for the religion of your children. So we should understand. And I want you to know that in the Hebrew culture, do you know that in the Hebrew culture, this was weighty? Why was this so weighty in the Hebrew culture? Well, not only would the lack of parent discipleship lead to kids going to hell, not glorifying God, having a lack of spirituality and a dead lifestyle, but hundreds of descendants who would be without spiritual heritage. What about your grandkids and their grandkids? God's glory and his name is at stake. Lineages down the road, ideas like Family readings and worship and praying as a family and serving as a family and what this book calls passage trips or journey trips, what we're going to call in the short time that we're going to explain to you this family ministry stuff, milestones, they should be done by parents. Listen, on page 114 through 115, he writes this. Listen to this. He writes, many parents today mistakenly believe the answer to keeping their children in the faith begins and ends with a dynamic children's or youth ministry. For many, the end all is a youth ministry with exciting worship, relevant events, relational youth workers, personal mentoring, and a charismatic pastor. Sounds reasonable, right? But it hasn't worked. Dr. Richard Ross, an expert in youth ministry for four decades, writes, this model has allowed us, listen, to maintain very strong participation for the sum total of two years of middle school. Then we lose the first group on their way to high school. The next group when they get their driver's license. And the last group in the spring of their senior year. The fact that most now sleep off hangovers on Sunday mornings in their dorms suggests our model, though well-intentioned, has generally been a failed experiment. Scripture research and observation by seasoned youth leaders suggests it's time for a new model, a biblical model. Now, I want you to understand that this isn't anything new. You know that? This family discipleship thing isn't anything new. Let's listen to some testimonies briefly. Jonathan Edwards, 1700. Every Christian family ought to be, as it were, a little church. Consecrated to Christ. Family education and order are some of the chief means of grace. Richard Baxter. 
the welfare and glory of the 1600. The welfare and glory of both the church and the state depend much on family, government, and duty. If you desire reformation, do all you can to promote family religion. Matthew Henry, 1600. Matters of family must be as prophets, I'm sorry, masters of families must be as prophets and priests and kings in their own families. And as such, they must keep up family doctrine, family worship, and family discipline. John Knox, 1500. Brethren, you are ordained of God to rule your own houses in the true fear according to his word. And therefore, I, I say, you must make your family partakers in reading, exhorting, and common prayers, which I were in every house used at least once a day. What about Charles Haddon Spurgeon? First, 1800. First, let us begin by emphatically declaring, Spurgeon in 1800, it is parents, fathers in particular, and not the church who are given the primary responsibility for calling the next generation to hope in God. The church serves as a supplementary role. Today, what about some common pastors? Ligon Duncan. Start family worship as soon as possible. As soon as one is married, start it. Continue it after children come along, no matter how young the children are. Listen, listen to this. The point is not for your youngest children to be able to comprehend or even to sit still during it, which some of you guys know in here, right? The point is to impress upon them by paternal example the priority of God and his word in all of life. They're going to see and say the priority of God and his word in all of life. What about John Piper? He says, we discovered that at a very earliest age, school for worship is in the home. When we help a baby be quiet just for a moment while we ask God's blessing on our meal. When a toddler is sitting still to listen to a Bible story. When a child is learning to pay attention to God's word or pray during family devotional times. And here's what his pastor says. Listen to this one. You ready? Churches cannot provide what families neglect. Churches cannot provide what families neglect. We can't simply desire, and this is hard because this is our culture. We can't simply desire to make our kids good, to make our kids successful, to make our kids good at sports. Don't let that become your idol to be good looking, to be best dressed, to be less embarrassing or less annoying. Sorry, kids. We can't be consumed by our own lifestyles or our own selfish desires and ambitions and just appease them all the, along the way. So many of us may become too consumed with our own ambitions and we'll leave our kids in the dust. Can't do that. Even worse, we may create in them the same idols that we have. We can't just hope they turn out right. Let the church maybe do their job. We can't just make them good people. We can't simply value just feeding them, which you should do. Providing them for them, which you should do. Playing with them, which you should do. We must not ignore the obedience that is required of parents to actively, intentionally, intentionally, knowledgeably, and prayerfully have the priority of discipling their children. To tell them, listen, the word of God, the things of God, the character of God, the gospel of God, the commands of God, and very simply, the story of God. That's what we see the glimpse of in the Bible. Let me show you just a mouthful of verses for just a moment. Deuteronomy chapter six, verse 20. When your son asks you in time to come, look at this, parent discipleship. What is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? When your son asks, what's the meaning of these things? 
Then you shall say to your son, here's the story. Y'all ready? We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed us signs and wonders and great and grievous against the Egyptians and against Pharaoh and against all his house before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our, our, for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commanded before the Lord our God as he commanded us. That's what you should say. What about in Exodus 20? And tell them, tell it in the hearing of your son and your grandson. So when your grandparents are not off the hook, okay? I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them that you may know that I am the Lord. Or what about Exodus 12? And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? Maybe they might ask you it of this service. What do we mean by this? Who's that man up there screaming for an extra long time? Watch it. You shall say, it's the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the house of the people of Israel. And when he struck the Egyptians, he spared our houses and the people bowed their heads and worshiped. Exodus 11, you shall teach them to your children, talking of them when you're sitting in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise, similar to Deuteronomy 6. What about Joshua 24, 15? You guys know this one. If it's evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, then you choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods of your fathers, the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the, the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, what are we going to do? We're going to serve the Lord. Psalm 78, 5 through 6. He established a testimony in Jacob, appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children. What about Proverbs 22, 6? Train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Luke 1.17, you know of John the Baptist, he will go before him in the power and the spirit of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. Ephesians 6, 1 through 4, watch this one. Look at it. Children, children, listen. Parents, listen to expect this. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with the promise. Isn't that crazy? Think about this. The first of the commandments that has a promise attached to it. If you do this, then this will happen. Is the commandment to honor your father and mother. That's the first commandment with the promise. If you follow this, it may go well with you that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. What about in 1 Thessalonians? We see kind of a picture of parenting. For you know how this is the norm. Like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. What about 1 Timothy 3, 5? Look at this, ready? This is for a leader in the church. Check this out. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Did you know that Timothy probably had an absent dad or his dad probably died? How do we know that? Well, when Paul writes to Timothy, he writes how Timothy received his faith. How did he receive it? Look, he writes to Timothy, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, Timothy, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother, Lois, and then your mother, Eunice, and now that I am sure dwells in you as well. That's family discipleship. Or what about 2 Timothy 3.15, which tells us how, how Timothy came to know Christ because Paul says it. 
And from childhood, Timothy, we know this. You've been acquainted with the sacred writings, the scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. That should be like on your dashboard, on your computer, on your phone, right? Okay, I want my child to be acquainted with the sacred writings from a young age because they alone are able to make him or her wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. That's my goal, acquainted with the writings. <laughs> so this is just the tip of the iceberg. Now, once again, we can't ignore the obedience that is required of parents. Listen to actively, intentionally, intentionally, knowledgeably, prayerfully have the priority of discipling their children. Well, all of this begins with the spiritual state of the parent. This is where we're moving towards. All of this begins with the spiritual state of the parent. Parent, this starts with you. Personally, to disciple your children, a disciple who makes disciples must first be what? A disciple. The emphasis on you being true disciple, this is where it begins and ends with the spiritual state of the parent and this is where we're gonna begin our study in our passage. In Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, I've entitled this first installment, It Starts With You. It starts with you because that's where our passage starts. It starts with you. And we are going to deal briefly with verses four through six of our passage today. Listen to me. I want to give you a brief introduction to Deuteronomy. Okay? This is going to be technical, but you got to understand it for this to make sense in the right way. Stay with me for the next five minutes. Stay with me through the whole thing, please. But... The next five minutes, you'll give me five things. Okay, listen, I want to give you this introduction. You ready? We haven't been studying this book, so I want to catch you up and lead us into chapter six, into our passage. The English title Deuteronomy comes from the Greek title given as second law. It's not a great title. And it's not a great title, most scholars will say, because it comes from a mistranslation of chapter 17, verse 18, where it says this. When he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. So this book is not a second law, but it's a copy of the law. That's the proper translation. More specifically, here's what this book is. It's a record of Moses' words of explanation of the law to God's people. Moses is explaining the law to the people of God, and this is the record of him doing it. The Hebrew title for the book is translated this. These are the words. And that's a better title. Where does it come from? It comes from the first words of the book. If you flip back to chapter one, it'll say, depending on your translation, Something like, these are the words. And that's common because just like our passage today, the passage we are studying is called the Shema. Why is it called the Shema? Well, Shema means hear. Hear. Which are the first words of our passage. Hear, O Israel. Right? So it's common for them to get the names of the book or the passage based upon the thesis or initial words of the passage. The book here in Deuteronomy comprises and completes a five-part unit called the what? Do you know? Pentateuch, five, first five books of the Bible. And listen, listen, ready? Just like Leviticus, the setting of Deuteronomy doesn't move forward historically, okay? 
The this contents of Deuteronomy, Moses explaining the law to the people, sits entirely in one location over the course of about a month of time. The whole book. One month, one location, Moses speaking to the people. This is what Deuteronomy consists of, one place. It's not a historically moving forward book. Plains of Moab, that's where they are. And can I tell you? This is the, the record of him explaining this to the people. These are the last, you don't know, like how long of time is transpiring here? These are one month and mainly the last few weeks of Moses' life. Not moving forward historically, not going anywhere in regards to place, one location, month of time, plains of Moab, explaining the book of the law to people, to God's people, recording it. The last two chapters, verses 32 through 34, is Joshua probably writing them because Moses in this book dies. And then Joshua takes over. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, what? Joshua. And he enters the promised land. And he writes the last little bit. Listen, Moses is doing in this story, what Moses is doing is is communicating God's laws. Listen, stay with me. God's laws, his divine laws to God's people. Okay? And then he's recording the account in a book. The people are receiving the communication in the book itself and through his verbal proclamation of it. Right? Many of whom, listen, these people were the second, listen, who were the recipients? The second generation of Israel which means that most of these people that were receiving this were born in Egypt after the Exodus or with, before the Exodus. And so they're on the verge of conquering Canaan. They're in the desert. He's explaining the law. Now this is Moses communicating the law of God to the people. I want you to please understand this. Listen, why is this important? Why is this important? Follow with me. In Genesis, we see God's creation. This is the story. You got to understand, biblical theology is theme-oriented. You must not only understand the historical information, but the themes. Follow with me. This is so important. Please. In Genesis, we see God's creation. Most importantly, his creation of mankind. Genesis 3, fall of man. God covers their nakedness which points us to Christ, the foreshadowing. He's going to cover us by the lamb. And listen, he curses the serpent. Remember this? I'm going to crush the serpent's head. And he's going to bruise his heel through the Christ. Now, that is a curse of Satan, but it also speaks to the faithfulness of God to his people. Why? Because in saying that, God is saying this. I'm going to preserve a people for myself out of my own faithfulness in spite of their sin, and I'm going to multiply them and bless their lives, and then they're going to be with me forever and know me as they were designed to do. This is a promise. So he fulfills this promise. He fulfills it. How does he do it? Well, first he says that. Stay with me. In, 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 to Adam and Eve, within uh, the context of Genesis 3, with Adam and Eve around, then, moving forward, let's take one step forward, okay? He makes that promise to Abraham explicitly. That's called the Abrahamic covenant. What is the Abrahamic covenant? The same thing. I promise to preserve, multiply, bless, be with. They can know me, my people. Ultimately, this will come through Christ, okay? So he does this. They're going to inherit a land, Canaan. He's going to multiply them, right? That's the Abrahamic covenant. Now, let's take one step forward. Okay, moving forward, God then shows his power to do this, preserve his people, love his people, preserve his people, multiply them so they would know him through Exodus, through the Exodus. That's one step forward. Now we're in Exodus. The Passover, they were slaves. He was going to free them from that, fulfilling his promise. I'm going to preserve you. I'm going to multiply you. Even when it looks bleak, and I'm going to do that through the Passover, 
where the blood written on the doors would, then the angel of death would pass over, ultimately pointing to Christ. It's intriguing that every time God keeps his promise to preserve and multiply his people, he does so with a hint of Jesus Christ. Then in Exodus, he gives the 10 commandments, which is another step forward. This is the way, if you'll follow these commands, it's gonna reveal your sin, which ultimately you'll need to accept the gospel. You need to know your sin. But then also, if you follow these, they're gonna preserve your life. I'm gonna multiply you. I'm gonna keep my promise to you. That's called the Sinai covenant or the Mosaic covenant. We've had Adam, Abraham, Moses. Now, moving forward, take another step. He's gonna now purify his people through the Levitical priesthood. Okay? So we're moving into what? Leviticus. His is God preserving his people through Levitical priests and ultimately through sacrifices now are introduced. By purifying his people through the Levitical priesthood, he's ultimately pointing to Christ, who's our great high priest, who will one day permanently purify us. But he's saying, if you do this, if you follow, I'm going to preserve, multiply, multiply, keep, bless my people. That's how I'm going to keep my promise, which ultimately would one day find its fulfillment in Christ. Moving forward, numbers. Listen, stay with me. We're almost there. Numbers, they're in the wilderness. God's presence is there in a pillar of fire and pillar of smoke. They're on the edge of Canaan, the promised land. They're wandering in the desert. Now, this points us again to Christ, where we on earth are wandering through the desert on the edge of inheriting the land with God's presence with us as his people. And this, again, is pointing to his way of preserving his people. Now we move into Deuteronomy. Next step, final step. And the theme is Moses communicating God's laws and enumerating them. You know, when you say the law of God, following God's laws, you mean more than the Ten Commandments, but you don't mean less than the Ten Commandments. Why? In Deuteronomy, he enumerated the laws, more of them meaning he expanded the law of God and explained them to the people. But once again, the same theme. If, that's why second law, not right, but close. Copy of the law, right? Explaining the law, right? So listen, and here's the theme again. If you'll follow these words, if you'll listen to these words, this law that I'm explaining to you, you'll live, you'll multiply, God will preserve you. I will inherit the promise. Right? Which leads us right into chapter six, and he starts with that theme. Read it. Ready? You're going to see everything I just said right here. And then we'll move from verses one through three into our verse four. Look at verses one through three. Now, this is the commandment. Look at verse one. This is the commandment, the statutes, the rules. Moses is explaining the commands, right? Listen. That the Lord your God commanded me to teach you. Okay? He's doing what we said he was doing. That, here's the promise, you may do them in the lands to which you are going over to possess. I'm keeping my promise. That you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son, and your son's son, you your son, your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I commanded you all the days of your life. Here's the promise. Again, if you do this, here's the reason that your days may be long. I'll bless you, preserve you, multiply you as I promised. Here, therefore, based on that, be careful to do them that it will go well with you, that you will, here it is, multiply greatly as the Lord God of your fathers has promised, right? Remember the promises? This is the way, if you follow the laws, here's the way this will all play out. Multiply you greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers has promised you in the land flowing with milk and honey. So, church, this is the promise. Now we move into verse four and he starts the Shema. Let me tell you this. 
The reason why this passage is so important is because God's people, the Jews, thought that this summarized right all of what God was commanding them. They recited this twice daily, along with Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 13 through 21, and Numbers 15, 37 through 41, many still to this day. Now, let me tell you this. This passage is the equivalent of the reciting of the greatest commandment and the Old Testament equivalent to the Great Commission. In the New Testament, people would... the God's people would multiply, be preserved, etc., through the evangelizing of the gospel. In the Old Testament, before the New Testament, before Christ comes, they're going to multiply and be preserved and learn his statutes through family lineage. We come into the family of God, become his holy people in the New Testament gospel, Old Testament natural family discipleship. So we learn so much from this. And here's what he says, three points for how this is going to work. He's going to preserve you. Now, let me tell you this. He is speaking to the individual. This is to the individual. This is now to the parents. Imagine this. Before I ever teach you how to disciple your children and come back next week, because I don't have to give you all of this intro. I can just jump right into verse seven starting next week. Very practical instruction for discipleship of families. But before I do that, he's speaking to everybody. Imagine this. Everybody, nation of Israel, listen. Do this, individuals. And then he's going to say, and those of you who have kids, teach them diligently to your children or get ready to or plan to do this. So we got to start with the individual first. That's why I say it starts with parents. This is how Moses is starting, parents. Now, ready? Here we go. Three quick points. Number one, from verses four through six, parent, in order to ever do this right, you must first have one God. We're going to see one God, one love, one truth. Now, don't take this for granted. Listen, ready? One God. This is what you must have, one God. Moses says this in verse four. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Listen, stay with me. We gotta move. Moses is proclaiming here a monotheistic belief system. Don't pass over this because you think you've got this. Listen, he starts with this word saying, hear, O Israel. Hear carries an implication of obey. Obey. Like if I say, hear, O Israel, listen, O Israel, it means obey, O Israel, hear this. He's stating this should be obeyed. Here's an example to give you clarity. Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 1. Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today. Very simple. Do it. Listen, this is meant to be obey, and then do that. Same thing. Now, listen, do you see that? Listen. So, Israel, who is Israel? Stay with me. Who's Israel? God's people. They are the ones that are meant to be set apart from the other nations. Who is Israel? This is God's people, the people of promise, the chosen one. What implications does this have? Listen, of course, this way will not be true of everybody else. Right? Listen, of course, this seems crazy not to entrust fully the church to do this job or to pawn them off on someone else or to, to, or to make this true of me first and foremost, not to incorporate other gods from other nations into my God system. But this is for Israel. Listen, you Christian parents must be set apart. You cannot be like the world. Of course, this won't be true of the people around you. Now, duh, you're God's people. So this is for Israel, the people that are distinct, holy, set apart, not like the other nations. Listen, you must realize this is going to be different for you. And then he says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Moses is saying to God's people, you must not incorporate the gods from the other nations to supplement or complement your God. This is a monotheism 
statement. The Lord is our God. The Lord, listen with me, ready? Alone. Alone is your God. This is the positive way of expressing the first two commandments. No gods before me or, uh, yeah, no gods before me, no carved images. Ready? Listen to me. He must not just be one of your gods. We're almost done. Stay with me. He must be your only God. Jesus writes this. You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him alone. Friends, have you been integrating the gods of the other nations into your life? That's the equivalent here. Yeah, follow Yahweh, but those gods look good too, and they provide benefits. I'll incorporate them in as well. That's what he's saying here. Are the gods of this world that the world holds as God, are they part of your life? Is he your only God? And listen, you're gonna have to just really be honest with yourself. I mean, I don't know you more than you know you. You gotta be honest with yourself. The only way true multiplication will happen in family discipleship is if God is your only God. That's it. That's where it starts. Second, and by the way, this word used here does not exclude the concept of the Trinity either. God is one. So our triune God should be your only God. Number two. We're we're a few minutes away. Number two, you must have one love. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Let me explain this to you. Moses now is telling them that they must love God, their only God, their one God, with everything, right? The New Testament, Jesus describes this verse as the greatest commandment of the law, Matthew 22. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law? He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, with all your mind. And church, isn't this amazing? The one thing that God says to you, listen, if you have him as your God, the primary things, he says, love me. Who says that? as their most important thing. Like, this is what kind of God he is. Love me, love me, love me. The greatest object of affection. And let me just tell you, heart and soul, lavav and nefesh, those are the words. They don't mean separate components. They just mean an internal all of life. And might is not a noun. It's an adverb, meaning exceedingly. So here's what it says. Everything in you, every disposition, every form, the seat of your heart, your decision-making, the vitality of all of your life, exceedingly with everything. And so this is your undivided loyalty and worship and love for him and him alone. It arises out of a relationship of love, of love. Can I tell you something? Isn't it weird that to love him can be commanded? How do you command to love? You know what that verifies for us? Love is anything other than just a feeling and spontaneous emotion. It's an act of choice based upon truth. It's the only way someone can command someone to love someone. So you choose him based upon the truth of who he is over everything else. Number three, and lastly, one truth. One truth. And this is simply put, your life, look at what they say, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. What words? The 10 commandments and all of the other similar ones that, G, that Moses is explaining shall be on your heart. They shouldn't arise out of a place of legalism, but from a place of desire from being on the heart. God will eventually put his law within our hearts in the new covenant. But can I tell you, this is what you must do. Church, is God's truth the guiding force of your life every single day when you wake up. It can't be if there's other things in its place. It just can't be. I just know it. It's got to be what you wake up to every single day. Church, listen. I aim to show you the problem 
what the Bible says, the intro to Deuteronomy, and then this particular passage that speaks to you parents. And let me just close by saying this. You must have one God. If you want to disciple your kids in the next generation to multiply, all other gods got to go away. Two, you must have one love. Choice based on truth. He's superior, plain and simple. Three, your life must be guided by one truth. And these commands should be always on your heart, meditating, memorizing, all the time, following his word and his ways. Let me tell you, the spiritual state of the parent, there's no skipping this. There's no going around this, okay? This must, listen, this must genuinely be true of your life. Really true or else this ain't gonna work. They'll know it. They'll know it. So can I tell you, last thing, come back next week because we don't have to go through all this intro. We're gonna jump right into it. Secondly, here's what I'm gonna give you next week as a way to help to start to make this true. I'm gonna give you a year-long Bible reading plan. It's gonna be stapled. It's gonna be on your seat. And when you get it, you're gonna have two weeks because it starts January 1st to get ready, breathe, look over it, get ready for it. And January 1st, we're all gonna start. It's 25 days in a month. So you have a few days to, if you, if, if you fail, right? But listen, this is one way. Come back next week to hear this and then to get that so that you can begin to follow it. Because here's what you need. Listen, you need the Bible to wake up to in the morning. You need not to choose your own verses for the day, but you need the Bible to already be there and what you're going to read so that you know that God is just by his own sovereignty speaking to you for that day. If you pick and choose, you're not going to live with that kind of assurance. So I'm going to give that to you next week. Please come back. Let's pray. We're going to sing for just a minute. And then we're going to, we're going to go home. Let's pray. Father, I just pray that this, that this time, this one hour in this week, out of our entire week, one hour together to look at your word, out of our entire week, I pray that this one hour that we just heard your word, one hour out of our whole week would be the most impactful hour of our whole week so that we have you as one God, as our one love guided by one truth before we ever think about investing in our kids. This must be true of us. Please help us in Jesus name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. We pray that it helps you joyfully make Jesus Christ your treasure.